Thanks so much, uh, Axel and Dr. Elson, for the invite. Um, so these are my disclosures. Uh, main learning objective I wanted to focus on from a management standpoint as well as supportive care updates as well, uh, which would be relevant to the novel agents, including uh, I.O., as Axel pointed out, but also I'll briefly touch upon some of the approaches relevant to prescribing and management of TKIs and also other supportive care measures that are also important in patients with cancer. So starting with the TKIs, uh, one, two studies to really highlight and point out is the REDO study. Uh, this was done in patients with colorectal cancer where two things were uh, done. Uh, essentially, there was preemptive rather than reactive prescription of clobetasol. Uh, hand foot syndrome is an important side effect and sometimes it can be debilitating. So the use of preemptive uh, steroid prescription to uh, rather than waiting for the hand foot syndrome to happen and alongside the recurrent theme in TKI seems to be less is more. So the 80 milligram starting dose as opposed to the 160 milligram starting dose and escalation by one pill at a time, which is 40 milligrams uh, if well tolerated, uh, not only not surprisingly had better quality of life, but in fact uh, the overall survival historically was better than the, some of the initial studies that came out with regorafenib that led to the approval. Similar lessons uh, from uh, not a trial, but uh, a real-world data where uh, more than 3,000 patients who got standard-setting dose versus uh, patients who started off on the half the dose of serafinib. Uh, again, non-inferior survival, better quality of life, uh, lower risk of discontinuation, and staying on therapy. We talked about TKIs, the last two talks and debates. Um, the durability of these uh, new agents would be better if the patients could tolerate it better. So the dosing here for both the TKIs uh, is, is, is applicable to many disease uh, types within GI where this is being used right now. Moving on to immunotherapy, I think the most important document to uh, be aware of is uh, now published in uh, JCO in June of 2018. I think it's the, uh, a very uh, well-described, descriptive, and practical document uh, uh, pertaining to IO side effects, uh, and I'll walk you through some of the things that they have done. Um, so immune-related adverse events, or IRAEs, uh, not only have they uh, included the grading, but they've included exact practical steps of what to do with the side effects if you were to have them. This not only talks about general approaches, but also specific dosing recommendations, the consults that you need to place, the tests you may need to order the differential diagnoses you may need to consider. So for example, let's say take about grade two rash or dermatitis. It talks about consider holding it. It talks about monitoring. Does it have to be weekly? Does it have to be bi-weekly? It talks about what to do if it's not uh, interrupted and if it goes down to uh, grade one, what to do. It talks about dosing of prednisone or equivalent, so it tells you one mic per keg or talks about topical components, talks about consulting uh, the appropriate teams. Uh, moving on to colitis, for example, it talks about holding it temporarily. It talks about what supportive care uh, prescriptions to consider, uh, making sure we rule out infectious causes, example C. diff, uh, where to get gastroenterology involved, uh, what steroids to give. And then it also talks about tapering of steroids too because you've, you'll hear you know, uh, different prescription patterns, how to go down, what's the optimal dosing, uh, how long do I take steroids, when can I resume my IO, especially patients who are having a robust response, they would want to resume the treatment back. So this, uh, again, um, can't emphasize and reiterate more that this is an important document. Uh, for example, pneumonitis, you know, these side effects are rare, but when they do happen, they can be um, life-threatening as well. Uh, in terms of, you know, when do you consider a bronchoscopy for a pneumonitis? Uh, when do you do empirical antibiotics? Uh, 
For example, here you need to monitor them every three days, as opposed to weekly for some of the other side effects. Uh, pneumonitis, uh, in, in, our, in our own experience too, when it does happen, when it's severe, it can be, uh, it can deteriorate pretty quickly uh, to becoming life-threatening. So again, talks about inpatient admission and IV steroids, and also other drugs that we may or may not be familiar with. For example, the use of infleximab or mycophenolate or when to give IVIG. So um, it is increasingly uh, seen that multidisciplinary involvement at your institution, depending on if somebody from, let's say, rheumatology uh, has an interest uh, in managing some of the side effects, uh, is increasingly being, being employed, or somebody from dermatology when it comes to anti-GFR rash or IO toxicity, if they could hand-in-hand, uh, hand, uh, if you could identify the champions uh, who are at your institution, I think that sometimes can be of value so for, for them to help you manage some of the side effects or, or consider biopsies where appropriate uh, as opposed to you managing them completely on their own and uh, alongside obviously rheumatology there is also the role of endocrinology, uh, hypothyroidism which can again happen at any point in time during the course of an IO treatment. Uh, again this document is very relevant and practical, it even talks to you about what dosing to give of uh, Synthroid, which you know, uh, I know all of us train in internal medicine, but in terms of uh, after having trained in oncology, if you see a patient with hypothyroidism, when do I worry about the TSH, what dose should I use, what do I do about the dosing in elderly, which again, uh, geriatric oncology is becoming a separate field altogether. So again, a very practical, very helpful document, because if you look at management of IOs, a lot of them were I think most relevant documents are uh, from uh, industry on their websites, which are nice PDF documents to uh, have in the clinic in terms of uh, for yourself and your PAs and NPs who may be managing some of these uh, toxicity checks and side effects. But I think this document, at least uh, through expert consensus, uh, uh, summarizes so there's consistency how we ma about how we manage some of the uh, side effects. Um, Again, uh, rare, but uh, is important. There's adrenal insufficiency and often gets missed uh, as to what, when to consider uh, holding IO, when to consider endocrine consultation, dosing of prednisone or hydrocortisone, the AM and the PM uh, dosing, as well as taper is very well outlined in this document. Um, other things that often we see is thrombocytopenia. Again, when to use IVIG, how long do we taper. Uh, this document is very helpful and practical. Other endeavors uh, from... Uh, patient advocacy groups and uh, nursing societies. Um, these patients may end up in a local emergency room and often they don't know what treatment they're getting. Uh, it was different when patients were getting chemotherapy where you knew that the most common side effect that I'm going to see in this patient is an infection and they just need to be hydrated and probably admitted to their neutropenic fever. Uh, not many uh, with new agents coming and uh, I think it's helpful to know if you're on checkpoint inhibitors versus CAR-T or vaccines or if somebody in the emergency room is they should or shouldn't be doing something or they're on a trial, uh, uh, some kind of an identification mark is helpful in managing these side effects. Uh, Moving on from IO to VEGF, uh, we talked about amesuramab, bevacizumab. I think uh, one of the key lessons, uh, I don't think there are great documents addressing this in as granular detail as we have for the IO, but some of the ESMO updates and some of the journals uh, that are part of ESMO have included some documents about dosing of ACE inhibitors uh, as well as uh, calcium channel blockers for renal protection as well as the hypertension that can happen with some of these uh, agents. Uh, the role of uh, palliative care integration for patients with stage 4 uh, is increasingly showing not only benefit and quality of life, but also survival. Uh, the initial data came from lung cancer, but the similar studies being reported across in other malignancies, including GI, are, uh, it's, I think this uh, doesn't necessarily need uh, reiteration for all the data that's out there. I think most practices would preemptively have a palliative care consultation 
already included into their practice. Uh, because of the word palliation, uh, a lot of the institutions are renaming their clinics. So, for example, one of the clinics is called a SIMPAC clinic, which is Symptom and Quality of Life in Pain Control. So the patients who get referred to those clinics, they don't necessarily uh, you know, show hesitation where they could partner hand-in-hand in, hand in taking care of the symptoms, quality of life, and pain control issues as you manage other side effects and uh, treat these patients. Um, the next few slides are from uh, Dr. Luprinzi. He's uh, one of the renowned supportive care experts in the country, um, looking at his take on what were relevant practical updates uh, from a supportive care standpoint uh, at ASCO uh, this year and last year. Uh, olanzapine, uh, uh, I don't know if, uh, how many of you have already started using it. Uh, the actual paper was in New England Journal in 2016 for the highly metagenic chemotherapies, and uh, it has been very helpful in patients uh, now that, that we're talking about triplet chemotherapies and going back to fulfoxid, fulfoxid, and other uh, regimens that are emetogenics or uh, flawed for that matter, uh, agents that, uh, patients where they have failed uh, traditional agents, so lanzapine is something that uh, can work and work really well. Uh, the, the main update for this year was uh, is 5 milligrams uh, dosing similar to 10 milligrams. There was also a question of, is there added value of NK1, a pepitant as well, when you're already giving olanzapine? Uh, other updates included, you know, bone strengthening agents uh, in terms of every three-minute intervals versus monthly, while a lot of these studies are in the malignancies, example, breast, prostate, and myeloma, which are uh, patients with uh, osseous metastases, but it's not uncommon for us to see patients with GI malignancies with metastases. And now, with all these agents and increasing landscape of many agents in ACC, cholangiocarcinoma, colorectal cancer, we are seeing patients who eventually may develop metastases because now they're living longer, or they may have metastases to begin with. Uh, that uh, some of the principles of how the dosing is being done for both for zolidronic acid as well as denosumab every three months seems to be as uh, good in terms of uh, preventing uh, skeletal events in these patients. Um, uncommon but important sometimes in a lot of our uh, patients uh, who may have had uh, uh, oophrectomy or uh, uh, um, in terms of uh, their metastases or surgery for their gastric cancer, uh, in terms of oxybutynin, uh, in terms of uh, decreasing heart flashes, and I'll show you some of the uh, results. Uh, so what they defined here in this first study is complete response, which was no vomiting, and then you didn't have to use your rescue medication. So in terms of a preptent or lanzapine or both, as you can see, the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, it, it is an active agent, and uh, in combination or in isolation, uh, it was uh, helpful in not only preventing any vomiting, but also uh, you didn't need to use any medications uh, from a rescue standpoint. The question of 5 versus 10 Seems like five milligram uh, looks as good as 10 milligrams. Uh, the, the prescription comes in 2.5 as well if you wanted to decrease the dose uh, in your elderly patients. Um, other things that are being looked at is the question of, you know, do you really need the epipotent as well, PO or IV, when you're already giving somebody olanzapine? And typically it's given uh, at bedtime, days zero through four, or the day off. Uh, that's the prescribing pattern, and a shout-out is for a trial that's right now looking at this question of do we need the addition of phosphoprepotent, both from a cost perspective and also, you know, it, it's IV. So uh, this is an ongoing alliance trial right now. Uh, I know it's opened at many uh, sites in uh, the country, so this would be something to accrue to, which would be helpful to help answer that question. Do you really need the phosphoprepotent on board? when you're already giving somebody olanzapine, which is, appears to be working really well, and it's a PO that you take for four days. And you can also use it for PRN later. Uh, this is that oxybutynin for heart flashes. Again, 
not trivial for those who are having this. Uh, it can be uh, a, you know, a huge source of decreased quality of life. Uh, as you can see, both the 2.5 milligrams BID as well as 5 milligram BID was, uh, had a statistically significant uh, and meaningful reduction in terms of the heart flash score. Um, uh, compared to placebo. And just a brief summary of all the agents that are out there. Uh, so if you look at venlafaxine or uh, medroxyproductone acetate, uh, in terms of many trials that have shown over the years, citalopram, fluoxetine, SSRIs, pregabalin, where does oxybutynin fall in? As you can see, these are the agents that all have shown uh, statistically significant improvement and meaningful improvement as well. And things that don't work are, for example, soy, flaxseed, there, are, there, was, uh, there were trials of magnesium oxide and vitamin E at some point in time. So, um, again, uh, I acknowledge Dr. Duprinzi for sharing these slides uh, for this presentation here. Uh, with that, I'll uh, take any comments or questions. Uh, thanks so much.